Welcome to the Catch the Fire Church podcast. We're so glad you're joining us, and we hope you're encouraged by this message. Thank you, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. How y'all doing exactly? I'm American now, so. Merca. I'm just kidding. That's all right. Jesus. That was a joke. <laughs> Whew. We doing good? I'm excited to be with you today. I'm excited for this word. Uh, I do want to quickly say, if you weren't here last week, oh my goodness, I want to say a huge well done to our Gen Z preachers. It was, it was something else. If you think the gospel is something that can be stopped, I ask you to look at the history books. Um, this gospel cannot stop, be stopped. It has, it has survived famine and plague and war and political agendas and all sorts of things. Jesus Christ and his message cannot be stopped. And if you look around the world and you see hopelessness, or if you look at the Gen Z generation, I hope you were stirred with faith that God is alive and well and he is working. He is the man of hope, hope himself embodied. And um, show your kids, if you have older kids, show them, let them be encouraged. God is moving and he's good. Amen? Amen, amen. We're going to open up our Bibles to Genesis 2. We don't have a lot of time and we got a lot of good stuff to get through, okay? So we're going to open the Word. We're going to dive in about half of Genesis 2 and and the majority of Genesis 3. We've been talking a lot about um, faith and what it means to walk by faith and not by sight as a church, about being the body of Christ, what it looks like to trust even in the darkest valleys and today, as we, as we open up the book of Genesis and we look at chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the effects of sin and shame, which is all in the church. It's all in God's people, right? It's all in humanity. And we're going to look at what it's done to humanity. It's going to be good. So buckle up. Tell your neighbor, buckle up. Buckle up. Genesis 2, verse 8. After God has created all things, after he's created man, he says it's very good. And then in verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hittakel. It is the one which goes, goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, say every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him or suitable, some translations say. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. 
And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Come on, ladies, we need you. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, Woman. Woman. one. Oh, man, I love it. He said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, a one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. A couple things I want us to note here before we read on. Firstly, I want us to notice the trust that God had for humanity at this moment in time. Right? God placed Adam. He created Adam in the garden. He created Eve out of Adam. And he placed them in the garden amongst all these beautiful things, amongst all these trees that were pleasant to the sight, it says. Places them. And he places them not just amongst all these things, these that they're uh, to subdue, to be fruitful, multiply, these beautiful things that he's given them, but he also trusts them explicitly and places them amongst this tree that are not to partake of, right? Y'all see that? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he trusts them. He trusts Adam. You are a man. This, this is the purpose with which we were created, to be in unity with God in full trust and right standing with him, amen? Secondly, God looks at Adam and he says, woman, as Antoine was saying, he says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. I need to create a, a, a helper, somebody comparable for him, suitable for him. And he puts Adam to sleep in a deep sleep. He takes a rib. And Adam, when he looks upon this, this woman that God brings, brings to him, he calls her the Hebrew word Isha. Is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And this Hebrew word speaks of the very nature and being of who Eve is. Isha is to say, she's the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. She is the essence of me that is now missing. The part of me that once was that is now missing. Do y'all see that? She is this perfect part of me. And there's this, this beauty between Adam and Eve, Isha. Thirdly, they were both naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. All right, now I'm going to ask you a question. Had they eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil yet? All right. Had sin entered the picture yet? No. Okay, let's read on. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God not indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The enemy comes along right away. And what's tactic number one here for humanity, everybody? It's something that we experience every day as believers, something that we know good and well. 
But the enemy, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren comes along and he tries to get them to question the very nature of truth. Especially as it relates to the character and nature of God. Did God really say that? Did God really say you couldn't have that? Did God really say you couldn't partake of this? And I'm reading this story and I'm thinking of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted and the deceiver saying, if you really are the son of God, if you are the son of God, and it's this word, if, and he knows if I can get you to question truth, if I can get you to question the reality of that question, is God good? Does God really love you? Are you really saved? Is he really good? I mean, these are some of the real questions that people can grapple with sometimes. And the deceiver, he wants to come in and kind of stick that blade in our side, cause us to bleed out of faith. I'm, telling, I'm here to tell you today that we cannot, we cannot limit our belief of God to our experience. We cannot reduce our belief that the, what we ascribe to be true about Jesus based on the experience of our lives. We are but a blip upon this earth, but he is the creator of all things. He is not reduced to man's experience alone. He is living, breathing truth. God breathed in and of itself. And so I want to say Jesus, he knew truth, didn't he? When he's in that wilderness, when he's saying, if you are the son of God, what does he use to combat the lies of the enemy or the accusations or the questionings? He uses the word. So know your word. Know your word, everybody. Verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, y'all having fun? I'm having fun. I love this passage. I've been feasting on it all week. And I'm like, I got to get this out. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So his first tactic has failed. She's like, nope, God did say not to eat it. And he moves on to tactic number two. He says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable, say desirable, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. The enemy carries on his sales pitch, and if he can't get you to question truth, he wants you to believe that you're in lack. And he comes along, and it says, I, I just noted this, noticed this literally as I was reading it now, that when, when God created Eden, it says that every tree that grows was pleasant to the sight, but somehow the enemy is convincing Eve that she is in lack. Listen, listen, it's as if... The enemy is trying to point the finger at God and say somehow God is cruel and selfish and won't let you have this tree. And all of a sudden trying to make them forget the very fact that they're standing in Eden where God has given them all good things around them. And the enemy does this. He twists truth. He perverts truth and gets us to think that somehow all of a sudden we are lacking in our lives. Because if we will step into strife and jealousy and envy and greed, we will begin to do the work of the enemy for him. 
and we'll let him off the hook early. If he can get you to look off of the things that you have been given onto the things that you do not have, you will forget yourself that you are standing in Eden. He wants to take us from contentment to just frustration, grumbling. Take us from gratitude. Take us from thanksgiving. It's, it's what he does. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the enemy, and I was like, this is the condition of Lucifer. Like, this is his fatal flaw, everybody. We can't be tempted by it. The fatal flaw, Ezekiel 28 tells us about it. He was an angel of the highest rank in heaven. He was a leader of worship, but that wasn't enough for him. There was this longing for him to be greater than God. And that was the very thing that cast him from from paradise, from eternity, from heaven. And so he wants to convince us we don't have enough. We're in lack and take our eyes off the good things that Christ has given us. Contentment to comparison, gratitude to grumbling. First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Listen, I'm in process. I'm still learning this. Just recently, uh, a week or two ago, I asked uh, Frank and Drossy if I could share this. I went and visited him in the hospital. He was having some heart things. And as a pastor, when you go to visit somebody in the hospital, you're going and you're expecting it in some way to be a little heavy, a little hard. People are walking through stuff. Stuff is real. I don't want to negate that. And, um, but I want to go show our support, our love, our care as a community, as a body. And so I'm visiting him in the hospital. And when I say I left with more faith than I went in, I'm not kidding you. Here was Frank full of faith, telling me stories with a smile on his face, telling God has me here for a reason, telling his nurses about Jesus, telling them about their true identity in Christ. Those even that are saved, he's witnessing to. He's the man's on zoom having calls with other ministries. He's talking to the surgeons and the doctors and I'm leaving the place being like, this man should just preach like on Sunday. Like my faith was so stirred and encouraged that he was living a life of radical thanksgiving and he chose to, to model this verse for us that I'm not going to look to what I don't have, but I'm going to, I'm going to choose to look for Christ in this situation. I'm going to choose to look for Eden in this situation. So the enemy wants to get Eve to doubt, to think that she's in lack and to question the word of God. And he goes on to blatantly challenge the word and say, you won't die. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Verse seven. So they ate of the fruit. And then it says, then, both, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord. Say the sound of the Lord. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said to him, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said to him, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? 
Who told you that you were naked? I was, there's this moment where they partake of this fruit and all of a sudden sin and shame enters the picture. And the very way, the very nature in which they perceive themselves as humanity is all of a sudden shifted in a moment. And they now perceive themselves, they see, their eyes are open and they see themselves as naked. And I'm reading the story and I'm saying, wait a second, nakedness is not the issue in the story. Just a moment ago in Genesis 2, when we pulled it out, at the very end, it says that they were naked and they were unashamed, but all of a sudden sin and shame has entered the world and there is this perception, this perceived perception in which they are no longer comfortable in which the person whose image they were created in their own skin. And so, of course, we know they go on to try to fashion themselves clothes and they try to do man's attempt at covering up their shame. But there's almost this question, the Lord, the Lord follows up with this question, this interesting question, and he says, he doesn't like try to convince them, no, your nakedness isn't a problem, but the question on the Lord's heart in this moment is who told you that? Who told you that? As if to say, what are the other voices in your life all of a sudden that you are listening to that is greater than the authority of my voice in your life? There's no recollection that the beast said to them, you're naked, you should be ashamed. But all of a sudden, as sin and shame entered their life, entered their thoughts, whose voice are you listening to? They're listening to the voice of sin and shame. Whose voice are you listening to? And I want to point out here that God goes on, we're not, we don't have time to read it, but God goes on to explain to them the consequences of this sin. And there's this moment, if you read closely, where God, he curses the ground and he curses the beast, but he never curses Adam or Eve. He explains to them the consequences of their sins, but he never directly curses them. It's as if the, the, he's a loving father. How many parents in the room have ever had to give your children consequences for their choices? If you haven't, read a parenting book, all right? It's like, hey, buddy, that thing that you did actually has consequences now, right? It's as if it's like a loving father, but he never gave up on humanity. If you read further into the story of Cain and Abel, and I said to first service, we might have to preach a part two because <laughs> there's just too much to get through today. But God never abandoned humanity, but there was consequences of sin and shame. There was a weight to it. Are y'all alive? Of course, shame enters. The next thing Adam does is blame, says, my wife told me to, to eat the fruit. She gave it to me. And I want to look at this, the, the, what shame does, what sin and shame has done to humanity. Firstly, I want to look at those things we covered in Genesis 2, that it, it comes, sin and shame comes and tries to challenge this like man whom was trusted by God all of a sudden, there is a sort of separation, if you will. That's what sin and shame does. Separates us from him who is holy. Because unholy, impure cannot live with pure. <laughs> and so you look at the text here. You look at verse 22, and it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. 
And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out, say out, of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Adam and Eve are separated from the place that God created for them. The intention was for man to, to live in Eden, was for to be, to, to feast on the riches of God's provision. But sin and shame entered the picture, and there was a separation. God never stopped loving, he never stopped pursuing, but there was a separation because of that sin. Secondly, I want to look at that, that, that word that Adam, Adam calls Eve, Adam calls woman, Isha. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, the essence, the part of me that, was, that is now missing. You are my other part. You are the part that I need. This beautiful, beautiful part. And it goes on to say that he, Adam called his wife's name Eve. And in this trend, right here, in this, the Hebrew word that's used is Hava, because she was the mother of all living. And it's as if there's this subtle shift in the narrative that he consciously changes her name, calls her Hava rather than Isha, and it shifts from a paradigm of who she is, the very essence, the bone of my bones, into what she can provide and do in humanity. All of a sudden, sin and shame enters, and the narrative is now about the fact that she is to bear children and to be the mother of all living. And it's the shift from being to doing. It's this shift from being to doing. Lastly, they have this radical shift in how they perceive themselves, right? And they attempt to cover themselves, to cover their nakedness. Which fig leaves, I was reading, I was doing some study this week, and fig leaves apparently are terribly... I I have a fig tree at a, a home I have, and apparently they're incredibly prickly, Leaves, just in case you need a fun fact of the day you know, for the book of Genesis. This was like man's attempt at covering themselves with these prickly leaves. And I want to I pull at the gospel here because the gospel lives right here in Genesis 2 and 3, okay? There's one scholar that says there's, there's or scholars will say that there's two Hebrew words for like where, where is something. And one of them is to simply say, where is that thing? Very straightforward. As if to say, where is my phone? There's my phone. Where are my keys? There they are. But there's another Hebrew word here, which is the word that is used, which is as if to say, it has more context to it. It's as if to say, my keys were right there. They're not where they're supposed to be. Where are they? It's as if, and all right, I got to say one more thing before I go there. Every moment before this context, God has spoken with man, but in this moment, he's calling out to man. And he's calling out to them and he's saying, where are you? You were supposed to be here, but where are you? He's not, God is not unaware of where they are. God is not unaware all of a sudden as if he isn't God. And doesn't know and see and perceive and understand all things. But it's as if to say, Adam and Eve, where are you? You were supposed to be here. Why aren't you walking with me in the cool of the day? Why aren't you by my side in the garden? Why aren't we walking together? Why aren't you with me? Where are you? 
You're supposed to be here. And then he says to them, whose voice have you been listening to? Whose voice, who, who told you you were naked? Why aren't you walking with me? Who, to, who told you that who you are made in my image is not good enough anymore? Or is something to be ashamed of? Or something to scorn? Is something to put down? Is something to cover up? You are made in my image. You're meant to walk with me. Are you getting this? It's like this painful yet beautiful and loving father who's crushed at the weight of what they've done but is so filled with love. Like, why aren't you here? You're supposed to be here. And then he does something that as I was reading and feasting on the scriptures, I was like, this is the New Testament right here in Genesis 3. And he does something. He shows up in the midst of their attempts to cover themselves in their shame and their sin in their attempts to make clothes for themselves. And he shows up and he comes to them. He, he gets on their level as it almost, <laughs> and he fashions clothes for them. And as I'm reading this, I, I'm all of a sudden thinking about the book of Galatians, talking about wearing Christ, talking about putting on Christ, putting on the new nature of Christ, covering yourself, clothing yourself in him. I'm thinking about Isaiah 61 that says, he clothed me with salvation. It's like God is showing up in their shame and their sin. And even right here, I see a picture of Jesus coming and clothing his sons and daughters. Because they were made for Eden. That was the place they were supposed to be. They were never meant to be removed from Eden. Man was meant to be in the place of trust and right standing with God and he never stopped pursuing that goal unto the cross. Shame challenges our belief and our standing, our sense of worth and our value from Isha to Hava. Our image and our identity were no longer comfortable with who God has made us to be. And so often as believers, we receive salvation, but we still walk in the shame given by as a byproduct of sin and the accuser. And we partner with the lies and we allow Satan to come and pervert our sense of godly conviction. And all of a sudden we walk in shame. And all of a sudden we're throwing ourselves pity parties and feeling sorry for ourselves in sin, thinking that we're doing something righteous. Are y'all with me? Because we think it's righteous to feel bad for ourselves. We think it's righteous to feel sorry. And shame is, shame is a poor master, everybody. When, we, when you sin, when you mess up, shame says, you will never, ever overcome this thing. You are worthless. You are nothing. You are nobody and you never will be. But the conviction of God, the loving, tender-hearted conviction of God says, you, you, you made a bad choice. You missed the mark, but I believe in you. We can do better than this. And he comes alongside of us. He's the God who came in the flames of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not the outside of the flame. He's not simply a cheerleader. He comes in the midst of our flame. And he says, we can walk this out together. 
shame and what the garden and, and the enemy wants us to live in now in this new, new Testament nature. He wants us to go back to that place to think that I am inherently wrong. I am inherently bad. Shame is final, but God is redemptive. Shame is final, but conviction is redemptive. That God is looking unto making you into his likeness every day. Fashioning you into him. He's, he's wonderfully committed to you. Jesus. So I need a part two. Looking at that clock like, oh, geez, help me, Jesus. God's strategy for this sin and shame was the cross. All along, he had a plan. All along, he had a purpose. All along, he knew. And he was leading humanity, was leading to this moment where a sinless man a God who would take the form of sinless man and walk in all the temptation of man would die on a cross for you and I, would give his very life for us. And God changed the paradigm for you and I, everybody. I believe that God's original intent was to restore us to that right standing, that place that we were always meant to be, which is the place of Eden with him, to walk in the cool of the day with God. to walk by his side, to be where we were always supposed to be. God didn't simply fix us, but he covered us. He fashioned clothes for us. He clothed us in his new nature. He changed the very metric for our righteousness, that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us, sees our shortcomings, sees our failures, sees our sins, but he sees the life of Jesus Christ. And as I'm reading Genesis, and I'm just getting wrecked by everything that I'm seeing. (laughs) I'm thinking of this, how sin and shame removed us from the garden, how sin and shame challenged our right standing with God, how sin and shame wanted to make it all about what we can do and not about who we are, how sin and shame wanted to challenge our identity as believers. But Jesus describes this New Testament gospel, the New Testament paradigm, if you will, in the story of the prodigal son, and when the son returns, all is restored. He doesn't have to live on a little community right beside the house. When the prodigal son returns in his sin, in his decisions, the father not only says, I love you, but the father runs to him before anyone in the community can scorn him or can say, you're not welcome here. The father runs to him and he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And it doesn't stop there. Then he takes his authority. He takes the full measure of his trust Which, think about it, Adam, the trust wasn't there because God said he can't remain here in the garden lest he eat of the tree of life and be like us. There was a break of trust, but in the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ did, he says, here's the keys to the Bentley, here's the family bank account, here's the ring and the robe and the authority, you are my son in its fullness. And then he throws a party (laughs) like to just be like, this is my son to the whole community before they have a chance 
to say, how dare you be the type of dad that allow that him to, to do that, to take half the inheritance and come back here. But he throws like a party for him. Restoring, you are my son, and I will even restore your image in the sight of others. Oh, y'all are going to be reading Genesis this week, I think. <laughs> I think I'm just going to be reading it now for the month. I, f- I believe somebody needs to hear this today. The gospel is a gospel of come to, not run from. Shame wants to set us apart, sin and shame, but Jesus came to return us to Eden with him. Amen. Jesus is inviting us in. He's inviting us closer than ever before. And he's saying, I I forgive it all. I restore it. And every time a prodigal, a son, one of us returns to him and repents, he restores us. He loves us. Not yet, not yet. I'm not, I need a little more time. Yeah, thanks. Are y'all good? Are y'all good if I go over a little bit? He did the keyboardist walk. He's like, I got this. Um, God has been working towards this moment from that, that moment forward. He was working towards this to the cross to restore all things, to restore our right standing with him, our identity, him, and our source of value and worth. We cannot afford to allow the enemy to pull us into shame. We are to walk in conviction. God takes sin seriously. But the paradigm of the New Testament is that it is no longer the law because our eyes are open. The law was powerless to perfect us enough to return to Eden. But Jesus himself was able to purify us. And now it is not fear that causes us to abstain from sin, but it is the kindness of God that leads man to repentance. It is actually a, and listen, if y'all think that ain't powerful enough, then you don't know God because his grace is sufficient for all of humanity. His grace is powerful enough to be the compelling force for us to, to, pour our love on him for us to not want to sin, for us to not want to do those things, for us to repent, for us to choose him. He is powerful. He is good. And I believe today that the Lord wants us to return to a love and acceptance and identity as a body of Christ and believers. To not walk in the shame, to not listen to the voice of the accuser. And I would put before you that The Lord might be saying to you today, whose voice have you been listening to? It's time to silence that voice. Because his voice is the only voice that matters. And I will be preaching repentance till the day I die. If if you hate that message, I don't even know what to say to you. Just get saved. Um, (laughs) It's so simple, this gospel message. It's receive the repentance of Christ. Come to him and say, Lord, I'm so sorry for any way that I've partnered with the lies of the enemy over my life. Would you stand with me?
we say it a lot. We were even kind of talking about it in pre-service prayer this morning, but church is more than just hearing a message. Church is, I love when church has an element of meeting with the man, man of Christ. And I want us just to take a moment and to do a little business with the Lord. I'll tell you one story and then we'll pray. I remember this concept of run to, not from. I was in a student at Bethel, California, Reading School, BSSM in 2008. And I was struggling with repeated sin. And I was feeling ashamed in this moment. And I kind of was about to do what I knew how to do, which is to let that shame work in me. And to kind of separate myself from God, to beat myself up, to feel more righteous, to feel sorry for myself, to to feel more righteous somehow. And all of a sudden, the Lord, like lovingly, the Holy Spirit lovingly came to me and he said, come to me. And so in this moment of where I was beginning to experience the byproduct, the effects of sin, where I was beginning to experience shame, the Lord invited me, come to me, come to my dining table and, and sit with me. And I put on worship music and I just began to like sit with the Lord as he, the weight of his love and acceptance and value washed over me in the moment after my sinfulness. And sometimes in our flesh, we have a problem with that, don't we? It's like the story of the the vineyard workers, the ones that got saved later and didn't work in the vineyard as long. We have a, a problem that they received the free gift. They didn't work hard enough. Well, it's not about works, everybody. It's for grace that we have been saved. It's for love that we have been saved. And so in that moment, the moment after my sin, the Lord was, and I was, as I was repenting, I'm not going to say I wasn't repenting, as I was repentant, I felt the full weight of the Father's love come over me. And it's like, I didn't have to do the whole shame game. I didn't have to wait till it had been enough time for my sin for me to feel better about myself. <laughs> we love doing that one. If I can make it a couple days, then I'm going to feel good again. No, it's like I came straight into the arms of a loving father who said, I have made a way for you, and that way will never fail you. So just close your eyes. Take a moment and ask the Lord, Lord, is there any, are there any lies that I have been partnering with? Are there any voices of the enemy, of the accuser that I have been listening to, that I have been exalting over you. Just listen. Jesus. Show us, Lord. Some of you, it's as simple as you think the Lord is fed up with you. And you've allowed this creeping feeling that the love of God is not infinite. (laughs) That he rolls his eyes when he sees you, but he doesn't, he runs to you. And as you begin to hear anything, any lie that you've partnered with, take a moment and just repent. It's simple. It's a simple message. Lord, I repent for any other voices that I've exalted in my life above the voice of my Father. 
Would you forgive me? And I feel the Lord saying that voice could even come through as somebody else around you is partnered with the voice of the enemy. That could come through a spouse. That could come from a business partner. That could come from somebody else. Just take a moment, forgive them, and say, I I choose to no longer partner with your belief of me in who God made me to be. I'll never forget as a young man, I I saw my brother at a a youth conference, I believe it was, in, in Toronto. And the Lord said, go tell him he's not the black sheep of the family. And so I went over and I told my brother, you're not the black sheep of the family. And he just burst. He began to weep. And of course, I'm weeping when you see your big bro cry. And I just began to pray over him. You are not the black sheep of this family. You are loved. You are fearfully made in the image of God. So just take a second as we've repented and ask the Lord, who do you say that I am? What does your voice say about me? You can find it in the scripture, but I believe we can also converse with the Lord and ask him, Lord, who do you say that I am today? So just ask him in this moment before we close, Lord, who do you say that I am? You are loved. You are beautiful. You are intelligent. You are smart. You can overcome that thing. Jesus, would you speak your truth over your body? Lord, I ask that we would no longer partner with shame and accusation, but that we would walk in your purity and your voice above all things. Lord, would your voice become the loudest voice in this body and would you speak to us and call us higher? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. There are so many opportunities to grow, connect, and be encouraged. To learn more, visit ctfraleigh.com and follow us on social media. Thank you so much for being part of the family. We are so thankful for you.